0: case that Client Earth are bringing is about the quality of air in London. Uh, and it's their frustration that, you know, over the course of a number of years, the government and previous mayor haven't uh, done enough, and so it's important that, that the case is heard. I mean, at the moment, it's worth reminding your readers that the air in London is a killer. Uh, it makes you sick, and it's unlawful. We've got to do something about it.
1: Figuring out how to clean up the air in London, or any of the other 35 cities in the UK where we're out of compliance, isn't rocket science. You know, it isn't very difficult. Uh, it just takes some political will and a little bit of traffic engineering, and then some creativity about how to give incentives for uh, people to move away from diesel
2: vehicles. From ED.net, welcome to this week's edition of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. The more perceptive listeners among you will note that these are not, in fact, the dulcet tones of editor Luke Nichols. Unfortunately, both Luke and senior reporter Matt Mace are otherwise engaged, which means you're stuck with me. Reporter George Ogleby. But have no fear, because we've prepared, what I believe to be at least, a real belter of an episode. This week, the focus is on the area of green policy, a topic which I hold very dear to my heart. Both guests are linked by recent events in the green policy sphere. Now, our first guest and this is a special one for me, as I was recently handed a golden opportunity to interview a personal hero of mine, it's fair to say. So who am I talking about? Well, of course, it's Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. On a wet and windy day just over a week ago now, I think, Edie was invited along to the launch of Sadiq Khan's second phase of his public consultation on proposals to clean up London's toxic air. Gladly obliging, I joined the Mayor along with pupils at Southwark's St Saviour's and St Olive's School, a traffic hotspot that would be included in the Mayor's proposed ultra-low emission zone expansion in London. Since being swept into City Hall just over six months ago now, I believe, the former Tutankhamen MP has acted swiftly to alleviate the bleak air quality outlook of the capital, which took, would you believe, just one week to breach its annual pollution limit for 2016. Mm. His latest air quality public consultation follows from an initial round last summer, which was very well received, attracting, I think, over 15,000 responses, a record actually. During our chat, we discussed Khan's wide-ranging action plan to improve London's air quality levels, the importance of technology and innovation in accelerating Britain's green economy, and the role of business in the Mayor's ambitious plans to create the greenest city in the world. So, um, without further ado, here is that conversation between me and Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. Hi, Steve. George Ogwey from ed.net, an online publication for sustainability professionals. Um, So today marks the launch of the second consultation on air quality. I know the first uh, consultation was well received by the general public. How was the uh, feedback and what's the reaction been from businesses?
0: Well, businesses uh, want me to clean up the air in London. Uh, If you speak to London First, who are the number one business representative group in London, they support my plans to uh, clean up the area in uh, London. There may be differences about detail. and That's not unreasonable. That's why I'm consulting. I want to take businesses uh, with me. What I'm deliberately not doing is, you know, doing things overnight with a big bang. I want to take businesses with me. That's why, for example, uh, we're having the statutory consultation in relation to a chi charge. That's why I'm lobbying the government for a national diesel scrappage scheme to help businesses who, for very good reasons, have invested in diesel uh, vehicles. I'm not bringing in... Uh, the central London ULOs overnight, nor am I bringing in the wider London ULOs uh, overnight because, not unreasonably, if you're a businessman or woman with a fleet of vehicles, you need time to change your uh, fleet. What businesses will recognise though is their customers, Londoners, want the air to be cleaned up and we need to make sure that happens. And I know in a week
2: or two we're expecting the retrial for um, Client Earth taking Deford to um, court over poor air quality levels. What are your hopes and expectations?
0: Well, look, this is, it's an ongoing case. So I'm not allowed to comment uh, on the case. sub judiciary. What I will say is that, you know, that the case that Client Earth are bringing is about the quality of air in London. Uh, and it's their frustration uh, that you know, over the course of a number of years, the government and previous mayor haven't uh, done enough. And so it's important uh, that you know, the, the, the case is heard. I mean, at the moment, it's worth reminding your readers that the air in London is a killer, uh, it makes you sick, and it's unlawful. We've got to do something about it. Mm. And just on a more
2: broader level, uh, I'm sure you've seen recently, London was ranked the fifth most sustainable city in the world. But obviously, there's still a long way to go. So what would you say is the key driver uh, to, to drive this low-carbon, resource-efficient uh, economy in London?
0: Well, I want London to be the greenest city in the world. Uh, that's why Celia um, you know, Rodriguez has been appointed in her job. That goes from setting up energy for Londoners to make sure we can have uh, you know clean energy being provided. That goes to helping local authorities when it comes to uh, their fleet uh, in relation to more, uh, you know, plug-in points for electric vehicles. That goes from us in 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 you know Transport for London making sure from 2018 the buses we buy are, are clean. In the meantime, we retrofit the buses. Uh, we have clean bus corridors which, where we use the cleanest uh, buses. We've all got a role to play, and that's why we've uh, we're launching today the second consultation. But with that, we're also publishing research. Which shows, I'm afraid, that you know the most deprived Londoners suffer the worst air. But also, tell you this, there are pockets of prosperity in Kensington and Chelsea. Uh, uh, and in Westminster, who also have really poor quality air. That's why it's important we work together to clean up our air. And um,
2: to drive this low carbon future, we're going to need technology and innovation. I know there's this clean tech cluster that's being formed in West London. Um, how important do you feel technology and innovation will be to driving low carbon future?
0: Well, innovation and technology is crucial. Uh, we are shortly advertising for a chief digital officer. And one of the things he or she will be doing is seeing how we can, you know, provide the information. We've got the data we've got to those in the tech sector uh, to to see what what they can come up with in relation to innovative uh, solutions. Also, with the technological advances, uh, electric batteries now are far better than they were five, ten years ago. We've got to use the innovation to make sure we encourage people to change their behaviour. And I'm sure we can do that.
2: Thank you very much. My pleasure. A great chat there with London mercedes Khan. Now, some of the points made on air quality by Sadiq bring us nicely into our second interview. You would have heard during that conversation with the mayor, him reiterate his support for legal action being taken against the government to hold them to account over national air quality levels. And that action is being taken by environmental lawyers Client Earth. So just to provide our listeners with some context, last year Client Earth won a case against the government in the Supreme Court over the UK's illegal levels of air pollution. The government was ordered to produce plans to tackle the UK's toxic air crisis, but those plans were so poor, that Client Earth has been forced to take them back to the High Court. Sadiq Khan joined the case after being named as an interested party in the case, and his legal representatives appeared in court alongside Client Earth lawyers and DEFRA defence team in a two-day retrial on Tuesday and Wednesday earlier this week. Now, very interestingly, Client Earth's argument during the case revealed that the Treasury and former Chancellor George Osborne had in fact blocked more ambitious air quality plans to reduce the UK pollution on cost ground. But without wanting to put words into his mouth, I wanted to allow Client Earth's Chief Executive, James Thornton, to explain, in his own words, the reasoning behind taking the government to court. Uh, While admittedly this is a rather lengthy conversation, it is worth pointing out that James is an out-and-out contender for the most interesting interview we've ever had on this ED podcast, and I'm not just talking about from a sustainable perspective, but more personal level. So make sure you stay tuned right to the end when we put the accuracy of Wikipedia to the test with a light-hearted factual fiction quiz on the captivating figure that is James Thornton, and here it is in full. So now I'm sitting in the presence of a man, the new statesman, once named as one of the 10 people who could change the world. James Thornton is an environmental lawyer and writer with a fascinating background, which we'll discuss later on in the episode. He's the founding CEO of Client Earth, a not for profit environmental law organisation founded almost a decade ago. Now, in terms of location, I think this is an ED podcast first. We're sitting in James's dining room. Uh, just a stone throw away from Client Earth's offices in East London. So thank you very much, James, for inviting us here today. So How are you, James? You must be pleased to have a bit of respite from the hectic last few weeks. Well,
1: yes, I, I mean, and it's delightful to, to speak with you and, and your audience. Uh, I'm just back from Warsaw last night where I've been working with our, uh, the lawyers in the Warsaw office on a, a new series of legal actions there. Um, And one of the remarkable things that's happened uh, just in the last two weeks was um, I was honored by the Financial Times uh, with an award as the most innovative lawyer in Europe in 2016. And uh, even more remarkable, uh, Client Earth was... um, They rank all the law firms. uh, And we're not a for-profit law firm. We're uh, a non-profit. I mean, we're actually a charity. group of lawyers trying to help the environment. But they, they put us in the same rankings and they listed us Number forty-six among all law firms in the world, uh, you know, far ahead of some of the big global law firms.
2: So, uh, whatever we're doing, it seems to be working. Exactly. Congratulations on that, by the way. Um, so, first of all, I want to start with an article that Edie reported on yesterday. So, yesterday, a uh, grand total of three new reports released by the Climate Change Committee, uh, which advises the UK government on reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm urge the government to vigorously pursue a package of measures it has identified in order to meet existing national climate commitments at its lowest cost. So I'm sure you saw the reports, James. um, What did you make of them? Well, I mean, the Climate Change Committee
1: is uh, doing a a great job. And, uh, you know, they need uh, need the, the public and particularly smart business people to understand them and get behind them. And you know, the, the head of the, uh, of the committee is, is Lord Gummer, who is himself uh, not only a Tory but uh, an extremely smart businessman, and he's one of the, the leaders uh, in the uh, uh, among all groups in, in Parliament on climate change and uh, seeing the uh, positive effects on the economy that dealing with climate change can cause. You know the um, the slightly frustrating thing about the Climate Change Act in the UK is that. We were in the lead for years uh, in passing the best climate change law in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, We anticipated here uh, a number of the uh, structural items uh, in the Paris Agreement, uh, including carbon budgets that you set for five years ahead and then have to meet. And with great foresight, uh, the Parliament said that we have a legal obligation to meet those budgets. Now that's great, and that's what Gummer reminded us of in the Climate Change Committee the other day. And a number of ministers have said that you know, at, uh, before the Climate Change Committee came out with its recommendations, that uh, with current policies we'll fail to meet our, our, our budgets, which is a violation of their legal duties. Um, and we really appreciated these, this series of measures. You know, one of the other key things about the Climate Change Act is that there is this uh, independent group of scientists mm-hmm. who
2: really look at what needs to be done. And uh, they're smart people. Mm. Mm. So, um, one part of the the report in particular caused a bit of controversy. Um, So, while the Climate Change Committee suggested a credible new strategy on low carbon Mm -hmm. uh, heat, which must be delivered as soon as possible, the committee also said it's too early for the government to adopt stricter targets for tackling climate change in line with the soon-to-be-ratified Paris Agreement. I know that... um, Friends of the Earth particularly uh, criticise that. Uh, mm-hmm. What are your, what are your thoughts? Well, that that
1: is not a very good idea. You know, I mean that part is not a very good idea. Um, and there's uh, there's uh, actually um, a uh, in our view an obligation to have these targets. You know, under the under the uh, mm-hmm. under the law, they did say a good thing on on aviation. You know, and uh, that we need to reduce aviation uh, emissions and. Uh, uh, among other emissions, so
2: mm. there are there are good things in there mm. we had the aviation deal um ratified well, well the passed uh, last week, and mm-hmm. I think people have come out and said it was wasn't strong enough too weak, only offsetting emissions rather than mm-hmm. reducing but it's a it's a start nonetheless isn't it so mm-hmm. we'll see but, um, so moving on to um the report uh, released yesterday by client earth um as I previously alluded to, Client Earth released a report stating that the government had breached the law over the Climate Change Act. The um, report stated that the Pioneering Act has in practice been dangerously neglected in recent years, while the machinery that makes the law work across government has been fallen by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Now, these are quite damning statements. So I'm interested to hear what drove Client Earth to release this report and sort of what, what is the key message to be taken from it. Yeah, well, I
1: mean, the what, what drove us to release it is the the uh, going back to the idea I was sharing a minute ago that we had uh, and still have on the books mm. the um, perhaps the world's best climate change legislation, certainly among them. Mm. Uh, but with legislation, it always comes down to uh, it's even if it's very nice in theory and if it sounds great, if it's not implemented well, it actually doesn't get you anywhere. Mm. So people can then take credit for having done a nice thing, mm. but unless you implement it. You know, it's uh, pointless or even worse because you think you've dealt with the problem and you haven't. And one of the things the Climate Change Act didn't do, um, which needs to happen if it's really going to work, is, uh, well, two things, really. One is it doesn't cover all emissions. So it, uh, it exempts from coverage about 60% of the emissions in the UK which are covered by the Emissions Trading Scheme. Mm. The problem is the Emissions Trading Scheme doesn't really work. So it hasn't yet reduced Emissions, for many reasons, but it's not working. So the Climate Change Act exempts those, and there's no need for it to do so. It, it could actually have those as part of the package. And the other thing is that it needs to have a real budget. You know, uh, businessmen and homeowners know about budgets, and you have a budget, and you have to then look at your new purchases against the budget, and whether you can meet it. Um, and the that's the one failing of uh, one important failing of the Climate Change Act is that. Uh, what we need to have is um, a budget for emissions across uh, all activities and have the government check all of its policies against that budget. So, for example, if you decide you're not going to uh, invest in renewable energy, like the government unfortunately decided, you know, then uh, you have, would have to make a calculation saying, oh, okay, we're not going to get a reduction in CO2 of X tons through that, mm. then we have to find another way of getting that. But that's not what happens. So decisions are made um, without respect to any notion of what the effect will be on meeting the climate change targets. And mm. if you wanted it to work, you'd have a nice budget, you'd compare all the policy decisions to it, and things would come into line.
2: Mm. And how, how confident are you that all these things will come into line? And I know that the carbon uh, plan's been... I think, widely expected to be pushed back to 2017 now. Is that a concern for you? Well, I mean, it's understandable. Uh,
1: it's not great, um, but uh, if, if the plan is good, that would be okay. And Brexit, not surprisingly, has confused everything mm-hmm. now, for a while. But, uh, but if it comes out early in 2017,
2: that's good. Great. Mm-hmm. And what you, you mentioned Brexit there. Are you, How mm-hmm. confident are you that environmental legislation from the EU will... Be, Will be kept by the by the UK government. Or... Well, uh, let's
1: put it this way: I'm very hopeful, uh, and uh, the Prime Minister said it uh, just the other day, you know, that uh, she would ensure that all EU legislation, not differentiating among the different types, that all EU legislation would be transposed into UK law and retained. Mm-hmm. You know, when the country left the uh, uh, the EU. And um, if we can rely on that promise, that's great. And then the environmental legislation continues in effect. In the future, of course, uh, uh, any, uh, a parliament could revise it. Mm-hmm. But what you need with respect to all legislation for purpose of business, government, and citizens uh, is you need a continuity. You need to know what your obligations are years ahead. So it's only sensible that we would keep the EU legislation in place, which, by the way, we agreed to. It mm. was never forced on us. Mm. We went to Brussels and we negotiated on every single one of these laws mm. before it comes back to Britain and yeah. people who talk about why we need to have brexit and or needed to have brexit and that's reestablishing sovereignty <clears throat> seem to forget that we've actually agreed to every one of these laws in mm. brussels, and if we didn't it wouldn't become a law because we could have blocked it, and we didn't so we signed up you mm-hmm. know so we actually had a sovereign choice to accept these laws. Why not? Mm. We did accept them. And therefore, it's not crazy to say they should stay in effect when once we leave the EU until some future date when we may re-examine them. Now, when they re-examine them, mm. it's a big question. Mm. You know, will we keep them? Our argument is that, and particularly on air quality, since I know that's a subject you're interested in today, on air quality, uh, we could use it as an opportunity to improve the air quality law. You know the uh, European air quality law is, is okay uh, but it's not as good as it should be mm. um, even though it's not mm. as good as it should be the UK and other countries are violating it mm. uh, but if we um, take the opportunity we can actually improve the law and use it to to drive the economy forward uh, as well as to improve the air quality mm. Mm.
2: that is interesting because even with this EU regulations in place uh, the UK have exceeded air quality limits so we, I suppose, as you say, we can use this as an opportunity now to strengthen law.
1: Well, well, we could uh, to strengthen law and and to improve the economy. So,
2: um, I mean, we've known about these limits in the UK and every
1: every other country has too uh, in the EU uh, since 2010. We had to, uh, we were obliged, we agreed, uh, and we obliged ourselves to comply with these limits. And in the UK, we haven't. Now we're not alone. Um, so we've also brought lawsuits all across Europe. We can talk about that if you like. Mm. I mean, we're we're not just. Um, focusing on the UK where we're focusing everywhere but um, you had the obligation to come into compliance uh, if you were a member state by 2010 mm. and in the UK we haven't you know so uh, we got a judgment finally in 2015 from mm. the Supreme Court uh, of the UK uh, to require a plan that would bring us into compliance as soon as possible mm. now it was a that was a four years of, of fighting in court because the government refused to do anything reasonable um, and uh, although litigation is uh, is exciting, it's not an efficient way to resolve problems. You know? mm-hmm. I would much prefer it if you could sit down with the government and say, well, okay, this is a legal obligation, you know it, let's work out a way to get there. Mm. But they didn't. They took a very um, a very aggressive attitude uh, towards non-compliance. And they even stood up on the Supreme Court and said, um, we have no intention of complying with this law. Uh, true, we had to comply in 2010, but we will not comply until at least 2025. Mm. Wow. Uh, And the Supreme Court said, OK, what do you want us to do? We're only the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, And uh, that was an interesting question, but it was a serious one in that um, the courts in the UK have not given injunctions against the government very much. Mm -hmm. Uh, In this case, we said, well, essentially what we said was, forget that it's environmental law. Uh, It could be a, um, a business law. It could be family law. Mm -hmm. If the government can say, we're only going to comply with the law when we feel like it, Mm -hmm. then you're no longer living in a country under the rule of law. Mm -hmm. It's no longer democracy under the rule of law. So the Supreme Court did give us an injunction. And the reason we're back in court is that uh, it's clear to us that the government has violated the injunction. So they did come up with a plan uh, by December 31 of last year, as they were required to do. But it doesn't meet the requirement of being a plan that will bring the country into compliance as soon as possible. They're saying that in London, as soon as possible, is still 2025, which is what they said before the injunction. Mm.
2: And we know it's simply not true. Mm. Mm. So, um, yeah, just for all our listeners who aren't aware, the retrial will take place on Tuesday and Wednesday, I believe. And obviously you can't go into the specifics of the case for legal reasons, but maybe if you could just uh, perhaps elaborate on... Well, the ideal outcome would be, or maybe not the ideal outcome, but what you expect will happen.
1: Yes, yeah. yeah, sure. Well, I mean, the, the basics of the case are quite simple. So, like I was saying, uh, the, the Supreme Court uh, actually said, which was remarkable, that uh, <clears throat> the uh, this, the dirty air that we have is a public health emergency mm. because 40,000 people a year are dying early of air pollution in the UK. So we had to come into compliance as soon as possible. And The government came back with a plan uh, which... Clearly doesn't bring us into compliance as soon as possible, Uh, and doesn't, for example, in London, even have, you know, a clean air zone for dirty vehicles, Mm. uh, for cars, you know, keeping the dirtiest vehicles out of the center, which is what you need to do. Um, the The point here really is that um, figuring out how to clean up the air in London or any of the other 35 cities in the UK where we're out of compliance isn't rocket science. Mm. You know it isn't very difficult um, it just takes some political will and a little bit of traffic engineering uh, and then some creativity about how to give incentives for uh, people to move away from diesel vehicles diesel vehicles are a real problem you know all of europe made the mistake of falling in love with diesel vehicles <laughs> and we've got filthy air as a problem yes. as a result and um and people are Losing lives over it. So, what do you do? I mean, so you, you create clean air zones, uh, so the dirtiest vehicles it can't go in at all. Others pay, you know, to go in mm. to reduce uh, the uh, uh, use of the centers of cities where the air is dirtiest. And then you could quite easily create um, incentives for uh, consumers to buy cleaner, move to cleaner vehicles, um, whether they're uh, uh, tax incentives uh, or scrappage schemes you know, and these have been used uh, elsewhere. One of the concerns that we have is for the poorest people who live in inner cities and who drive dirty diesel vehicles, what do you do? Some of them could be encouraged to use public transport certainly and part of the answer to the solution is to have more public transport uh, but it's also to move to cleaner vehicles and um, there has been uh, a lot of work on scrappage schemes elsewhere, particularly in Los Angeles where they've been dealing They've had uh, clean air problems for a long time, and they've been dealing with them quite aggressively for a long time. And as a result, California has actually become, you know, a, a business leader um, in many of these ways. And one scheme they brought in last year um, allows uh, people, if your income is low enough, to get up to uh, fourteen thousand dollars in subsidy to use an elect to buy an electric vehicle which will buy it for you if you buy a second-hand one. Mm. So you can get a free electric vehicle if you're poor enough in Los Angeles uh, under their new plan, which is remarkable. So there's an awful lot that can be done. I mean, if you use the opportunity uh, of this clean air plan and then a new clean air act to uh, create incentives for people to buy cleaner vehicles, you give businesses that are interested in all of the many aspects of a greener economy an opportunity because investment starts to flow to them. Mm. And you could become
2: world-leading if you wanted to. But do we want to? That's the question. Mm. I think one man who possibly does want to, uh, a man who supported uh, your case, is Sadiq Khan, yeah. the mayor of London, who we actually interviewed on Monday. Mm-hmm. And he's introduced uh, a, a raft of legislation to bring in ultra-low emission zone in mm-hmm. central London a year early. Uh, 2019, I believe, mm-hmm. and um, also he's tr- he's trying to force the government as hard as can to introduce a national diesel scrappage scheme. So mm-hmm. uh, it, there is some positive news out there and some people who are trying hardest, but I just, yeah, let's hope that this can move towards government as well. Um, well, yes, and it needs to. And, um, you
1: know, we're really encouraged by Sadiq Khan. And um, when we changed mayors, uh, we got a mayor who was much more interested in clean air. You know, and his very first policy move when he took office was to decide to join our lawsuit against the government, which was a really good sign, <laughs> you know, of, of of his intention. And a lot of the, uh, the ideas he um, uh, has proposed now um, are, are ones that we are very much in support of. You know, the uh, I, I don't want to always quibble, but he could be doing even more. You know, um, twenty nineteen. You don't need to wait till twenty nineteen through the ultra low emission zone. Why not 2018? 2018 still gives you quite a lot of time to design it. Mm. How about the middle of 2017? But 2018, I'll just give you an example. Um, I mentioned that we were bringing cases uh, across Europe, and we are, so we brought 10 cases in Germany uh, against uh, areas with dirty air, against the governments, you know, where there's dirty air. Brussels, uh, two in the Czech Republic, and there are more uh, that are going to be on the way. And surprisingly, in Dusseldorf um the uh, the judge ordered all diesel vehicles banned from the uh, the dirtiest part of the city mm. uh, as of January 1 2018 banned wow you know uh, that's a remarkable thing for mm. a judge to do but obviously very upset that the government hadn't come up with a workable plan mm, mm,
2: mm. yeah it seems like our european counterparts seem to be one step ahead of us but they sometimes are but there's no reason we can't be equally good or better, you know. And
1: you asked me earlier what the court will do. I, Of course, you never know what the court will do, but what I hope uh, they will ultimately do um, is to say uh, that the, to the government, you haven't met the terms of the injunction, uh, you have to do more. Mm-hmm. Because it's obvious
2: you can do more. Mm. And we sincerely hope they do. Well, they, they need to. Um, so the ongoing criticism of air quality levels in the UK signifies more broader-looking failure from the government, if you will, to take a lead on green policy issues. Mm-hmm. So now, James, in my hand, I have a list. And this list uh, is a wish list created by EDI after speaking to sustainability professionals, politicians, businessmen and environmental activists working across the green economy to find out what they want to see from the government in this new parliamentary session. So just casting your eye over that list now. I don't want to put you on the spot, but if there's anything out there, any particular area that stands out for you that requires the most attention, what would it be? Let's see.
1: Um, for people who can't see the list, this is a, a remarkable list of 16 great initiatives. and you know, it's actually hard to, uh, it's hard to pick among them. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, they're all really good. Uh, don't let Brexit hamper Britain's green innovation potential. Absolutely true. We were talking about that earlier. Um, build an ambitious energy efficiency strategy that's part of meeting the climate targets has to be um, and it's something the government has moved away from um, The uh, uh, deliver an ambitious carbon reduction plan we were discussing ideas earlier about how to do that for example making a national carbon reduction budget for policy decisions and not just a numerical limit for carbon emissions uh, push the UK to ramp up air quality action you know I'm going to love that one. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the the next one below that, the deliver Sustainable Cities of the Future today, is very closely connected with these other uh, issues. So, uh, if you were to take air quality action very seriously and creatively, and you were to put uh, build an ambitious energy efficiency uh, strategy, and you were to look at a budget for all... Um, uh, emissions so the policy decisions had to be measured against it um, you would begin to uh, produce sustainable cities you know the uh, sustainable cities um, are, uh, are really necessary more than 50% of all humans are already living in cities and I believe and more and more will uh, and the good news is if you can bring people into cities and make them sustainable it gives you a great opportunity uh, to clean up our act globally. Mm. Uh, and and therefore, sustainable cities are, are truly important. And these other things, like uh, air quality, are uh, a way of getting to sustainable cities. Mm. So uh, Because you can't have a sustainable city without clean air. You can't have a sustainable city without um, really uh, efficient energy strategy. You can't have sustainable cities unless you look at your overall carbon budget and make decisions on national policies based on emissions. But if you do all those things and then you know there would be other things we could add to this list like uh, green finance. Mm. You know the uh, we worked with others on setting up the green investment uh, bank, you know, in the UK. And uh, that's another thing the government has not been so enthusiastic about unfortunately. Mm, yeah. But uh, if you t- were to include green finance so that businesses that wanted to move in the right direction and wanted to move into sustainable uh, Uh, areas uh, were supported by the Treasury, that would also help a lot to move to sustainable cities. And if we can get sustainable cities, then we get sustainable countries. If we get sustainable countries, we get a sustainable world. It's a knock-on effect, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's a positive, Mm. virtuous circle. (laughs) Uh, And it's what we need to do. So all of these, uh, or many of these things, uh, would lend directly into that goal of of creating sustainable organisms. And, you know, a, a sustainable city really can be looked at as an organism. Um, uh, organisms are very good at um, having their waste used by other organisms, you know, so that um, nature recycles everything perfectly and nature doesn't produce pollution. You know, so if you start thinking about um, sustainable cities as, uh, as organisms and then the country as uh, a healthy organism of which we're a part... You know, you can get there. And then you begin to think organically about, about policies. What does a clean air policy really look like? Well, um, a clean air policy should include these aspects of um, driving investment toward clean technology. Then we can get there. And then it's not, a, it's not a harm to the economy. It's a huge benefit to the economy. Indeed, air pollution is, is the harm, a harm to the economy. The government's own numbers um, recently revised upwards, show that uh, it's 27.5 billion pounds year, uh, annually, uh, a year, annually, uh, a year lost to air pollution to, to the economy. Isn't it sickening? Yeah, mm-hmm. and all the lives. So all the 40,000 people die early. 27.5 billion pounds lost. Um, so solve the problem, uh, boost the economy, save lives. It's
2: it's really simple when, when you look at it the right way. Mm-hmm. If only the government saw it the same way. Um, I want to draw your attention to number 12, mm-hmm. provide more clarification over our energy mix. So in recent mm-hmm. months, we've had um, a few of these issues have been in, in the media limelight. Um, the decision over Hinckley Point, um, controversial to say the least. Uh, in addition to that, we have the saga over fracking Big. That's a big uh, issue at the moment, uh, mm-hmm. and then you you take into the mix renewables, uh, CCS technology, which seems to have been discarded by the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting point. I was wondering what your view is on on where all these points stand together. And mm. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, your point about providing more clarification of the energy mix is is a, is a very good one. Yeah. Um, what the um, what the problem we seem to have is is that the, uh, the government doesn't have any. Uh, a coherent strategy to move us in the right direction on energy, um, and um, you know the um, killing our CCS, uh, what appeared might have been a very good experiment in CCS was a big mistake. I think you know uh, there are an awful lot of smart uh, commentators who think that CCS has to be part of the capacities that we were, we have going forward. I was reading a paper from the Royal Society. You know the uh, the scientists. Mm. Um, recently saying that we simply need to have CCS as part of the energy mix. And we were perhaps close to getting it, but we killed it, you know. And we were doing very well with renewables. Um, And, you know, the green part of the economy was the one growing part of the economy. And we decided to kill that, you know. Um, The investment in Hinckley seems to me uh, to be a disaster in that so much money is moving away from where it should be going into, you know, a very... No matter what else you think about it, atomic energy, this plant is way too expensive for what it's going to deliver. And mm. It just makes no sense mm. as, a, as a national investment in a time when everyone likes to think we're poor. Mm. Mm. So there isn't a, a, a good vision. I mean, the vision obviously should be towards how do you, uh, how do you create a renewable energy system and energy security? Uh, and the two go together. You know, uh, and uh, if you're going to create energy security and a renewable energy system... You also have to think of your connections with the rest of Europe. Mm, mm. You know, so these things really require uh, connection
2: rather than breaking relationships. Indeed, in the, in this globalized world, we need to understand that interconnection is is the future. You know? mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's. Uh, but uh, you know, and
1: then you know, I was just uh, I was just reflecting on I was reading some economics of energy policy the other day, and um, it was uh, it, it's painful that. Uh, we and Norway made such different uh, decisions. So, we both had a lot of North Sea oil. Um, and uh, Norway uh, decided that it was going to uh, invest most of the money um, in uh, a, a national um, account mm. that would uh, allow people to become wealthy if they were Norwegians. And it's now the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world by a long way. Mm. Um, whereas we gave it all away and uh, we didn't have to. Mm. So, the lack of foresight you know, about the energy we had and about how to create energy in the future um, is troubling. Um, you know, I'm, I'm concerned that one of the... We were talking about Brexit earlier. One of the main outfalls of Brexit is that um, the government seems to have uh, very little planning power mm. um, about anything. And um, that seems to be being consumed by Brexit. Mm. So is this a time in which they're going to have the foresight to come
2: up with a creative energy strategy? I fear not, although it's desperately necessary. Mm, Yeah, I mean, it should be at the forefront and center of policy plans, but you just feel like it's, unfortunately, it looks like it's going to become a sideshow in the upcoming years with uh, the government focusing purely on all this mess in which Brexit has brought about. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, we'll, we'll have to watch this space anyway. Um, yes, and like I was saying earlier, that we have, we need to look for the opportunities
1: uh, in in the space. So, uh, you know, we have an opportunity to have a you know cleaner air, and uh, we certainly have an opportunity uh, to do more um, interesting things than Europe is doing mm-hmm. uh, about renewables. You know, if we detach from Europe, we could be more experimental, you know, and more progressive, and we could decide where we're going to lead the world with our, uh, our own uh, clean air. Act and our own climate change act mm. uh, and uh, become a model mm. and uh, I think um, I've talked to a lot of smart businessmen who see the opportunity out uh, there, um, but can we bring the government along mm. I hope so mm. we'll certainly be arguing for it yes
2: definitely it's it's interesting when you think we could be the the leaders the pioneers mm. in this uh, green revolution you think you look at Scotland and you think mm-hmm. wow like the the renewables that they're that they're introducing there, I think the largest offshore wind farm in the world is is mm-hmm. place, and he's thinking, well, they, these are our neighbours, and why can we not follow suit? Yeah.
1: Yes, or why, why why not compete? Yeah, you know, why not say we can do it better? Uh, we've got more area for wind farms than they do. We've got a longer coastline, you know, and uh, you know Denmark and Germany are doing so much better than we are. I mean, they're European neighbours, so why why aren't we doing as well or
2: better? Mm-hmm. It's a, a million-dollar question. Uh, but I, th- I think we could discuss green policy all day long, but I, I'm not sure how far we'd actually get with it. So at this point, I'd like to take a breather from the tiresome and of politics and take a more business-focused approach. Mm-hmm. And um, you've mentioned... Um, Client Earth have been involved in uh, legal action with governments and now I, I'm interested in to, ask, to, to find out if you target businesses are the mm-hmm. businesses ever targeted for failing to comply with environmental standards and maybe you could just elaborate on the, the suits that you may have with businesses
1: yes sure uh, yes we do have some uh, not in this country uh, uh, in this country uh, what we have is um, this country being the UK I don't know where people are listening to this so in the UK uh, we have offices in London and Brussels and Warsaw. And I should just mention that we also work in five African countries and uh, beginning to work in China. So we have this uh, global um, global experience now. And in the UK, we've had a cooperative project with, um, the, uh, uh, with the seafood industry. So we have a biodiversity project, which is trying to make sure that we have enough fish in the sea for... So two generations from now, the fishermen and fish mm-hmm. have a good life together. You know, and um, one of the things we decided that it would be helpful is if we worked with businesses to uh, create what we now call a sustainable seafood coalition, so that the businesses would agree to go beyond what the law requires uh, in terms of labeling seafood and sourcing sustainable seafood and so on. And at the beginning, everyone was very skeptical that we could get uh, these uh, tough supermarket competitors into the same room you know, and, uh, and agree on things. And it took a while, but uh, now we actually have... uh, I think it's about 80% of the entire seafood market in the UK uh, has now agreed to these sets of standards. Really successful, and all the businesses are very happy with it. So that's an example of us uh, looking for ways to work with businesses and uh, encourage them to actually go beyond what's required at the moment uh, and show the possibility of where the law could actually come up to. So is the seafood industry in the UK has has become a global leader, and now we're trying to take those ideas to the US. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one type of work with industry. Um, in Poland, uh, it's, it's quite different, uh, in that we do have a series of, uh, of lawsuits in Poland against companies, and um, that's because there was... Um, when I, I started uh, in Poland about six years ago, uh, there was a plan to have 14 new huge coal-fired power stations And as will be no surprise to you and your listeners, the uh, worst thing you can do for the climate is to build a coal-fired power station. If you want to generate energy, you need to do it in another way these days. They were trying to replicate the Soviet energy policies of the 1960s by building these big stations. And there was no way around it. I mean, we tried talking and it didn't go anywhere. And uh, one of them, at least, was government owned but the other were all private investments. So we had to sue these private investments. Um, because uh, we really wanted to create the opportunity for Poland to have a different energy future. And this would have locked in the system for 30 or 40 years into more than 90% reliance on coal. So uh, these, these cases have actually been quite successful. Um, five of these, uh, now we're about um, five years in or so into these cases, and five of those 14 plants have been withd- withdrawn you know, voluntarily. The investors decided to do something different. In one case, um, it was really quite good, a um, big company called Energa, and they uh, also own a lot of the transmission system. So they decided they were going to not build a new coal-fired power station, but they were going to build a gas plant to reduce emissions. And they were going to invest heavily in upgrades of the transmission system uh, to increase efficiency mm. uh, so as to reduce the need to generate electricity with coal because uh, the system was just wasting a lot of the energy. So a very good result. Nine of these other plants are still um, possible, but they're on hold. And, you know, as time goes on, they become less economic. Mm. Uh, So that's uh, a set of interactions we've had with industry. Uh, Some of the companies have actually become quite friendly, uh, interestingly. Mm. Uh, One of them, another big company, uh, invited us uh, to bring um, environmental activists uh, together to have um, with them... To have a discussion about the energy future of Poland. They wanted to see what, okay, if we don't do this, what should we do? Quite interesting, and it was hard work because we were denounced by the secretary of the treasury as working against the interests of the country. Mm. Even these are these are all Polish people in the office. You know, they're Polish patriots and they want a good future for Poland. Um, and uh, the big business newspaper, which uh, is hard to pronounce, but goes something like *Rzeczpospolita* us uh, on the front page the day we were in that Polish Supreme Court as the eco-terrorists. Three years later, the good news was that the same business paper uh, asked us to do a half-page editorial on what a renewable energy future for Poland could look like. Mm-hmm. So uh, the result of these actions and all of the work around them, trying to talk to people and trying to bring people together, has meant that there has been a really new discussion on what uh, what a secure energy future should look like. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, that's that's an example of um, two very different types of mm-hmm. uh, actions or uh, connections with an mm-hmm. industry.
2: That's great to hear, and it's it's also good to hear that businesses become more receptive in the yeah. last few years. You mentioned that you've become more friendly with some of the for the, some of these organisations. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. good to see that businesses are finally taking a stand mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what I was going to ask: What role do you think business should play if in in an ideal world? Mm-hmm. What role should business play in sort of mitigating pollution and mm-hmm. de, just the role in decarbonizing the earth in general?
1: Yeah, well, um, it's a great question. Um, in terms of pollution, uh, I mean, what would be great is if uh, if companies actually uh, met their limits just to start. A lot of companies do, but a lot of companies don't. So there are a lot of companies that are violating the limits that are. There are uh, environmental limits for discharges of all types, you know, and uh, back to air pollution, one of the uh, the big revelations of the last year was the Volkswagen scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, it was partly a revelation, but everybody, will, everybody in the business uh, knew that the cars were emitting much more than was legally allowed mm-hmm. uh, anyway. Um, And uh, the government was essentially colluding with them, or the governments were. I mean, uh, now that the UK government finally uh, was caught in not having to do anything, uh, not having done anything, it it tested 37 different models of cars, um, diesel cars, and found that they all emitted much more than legally required in real-world conditions, Mm. uh, some of them six times or more what was legally required. So the government was kind of colluding, but the companies were knowingly, um, producing vehicles that, in real world conditions, couldn't meet limitations. Yeah. So one of the things uh, I think is that um, is to take the responsibility seriously of, of meeting uh, targets, and that's that's kind of a baseline and should be should be a norm. But then there can be uh, great leadership. Um, so investment in, in green technology uh, can go way beyond what's legally required, you know, and. Um, and uh, let's talk about the investment industry for a moment. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing a lot of work on on the um, investment industry, uh, as well as on the duties of officers and directors uh, of all companies, say energy companies, to take account of climate change risk in their business decisions. So um, the... Uh, The heads of pension funds, for example. You know, a a lot of the money in the world, um, a lot of savings in the world are in pension funds, Mm -hmm. in the UK and in every country. And um, now that it's become clear that climate change is a real risk, um, there's really no doubting it. You know, every academy of science in the world agrees. All the countries in the world have signed the Paris Agreement. So um, there's a crystallization of the understanding that climate change is a real risk. And um, we believe that you can now make the argument that it's also a systemic risk to all classes of financial assets. So uh, it's kind of obvious that uh, coal, if you want to invest in coal, it's a bad idea these days. Mm. Not only because coal is bad for the environment, but because coal companies are crashing. Mm. You know, the world's biggest coal company, Peabody, an American company, just went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Um, And they had invested all of their pension fund in the company, so that the people holding the uh, people who are going to be pensioners have no no income from the pension fund. Uh, an extreme example, but all over the world, coal is becoming you know a bad investment. So that's obvious. But uh, what, what else can you do? Well, um, you really should be looking if you're a pension fund uh, manager at all classes of assets um, to see uh, what uh, climate change risk means for them mm-hmm. and to take that risk into account as you make your investment decisions. Mm. What you can also do um, is, uh, certainly again, if you're running a pension fund, is to use your shares because you have vast amounts of shares in companies uh, to help move the companies forward. Uh, And we're we're helping members of pension funds ask companies and pension funds uh, to do this. So that um, if you have a large block of shares in Shell, for example, or BP, which pension funds do, um, why not demand that they produce a two-degree business plan, So, uh, meaning uh, a business plan that shows that they can be profitable in a world that doesn't go hotter than two degrees. Uh, Shell and others are assuming that we actually go up to four degrees, so Mm -hmm. it's a kind of business as usual plan, and Mm -hmm. it's easy to show that you make profits if nothing changes and if climate change uh, is not addressed mm. but climate change will be addressed so uh, companies can take a lead in doing that by producing two degree business plans uh, by beginning to act as if the Paris Agreement is real and mm. meaningful mm. Um, they can bring themselves into alignment with the Paris objectives a Paris Agreement doesn't itself give direct obligations to companies mm. you know, that will come later as countries devise, uh, devise and design their own uh, national emission reduction plans. You know, um, those plans will put obligations on companies, of course, but that's going to take a while. You know, just because it does take a while, um, even if the politics align. But companies themselves can go much further, much faster, by uh, deciding that they're they're going to come up with a two degree business plan and they're going to make investments uh, as if. Paris was really meaningful Mm. and the fact that this um, climate change risk is now financial risk Mm. uh, gives the uh, officers and directors of companies more freedom uh, to make investment decisions so that uh, they don't have to only think about the next three months you can think in the longer term if you realize that um, there's a financial risk to your company um, and that would be great So if, with companies, if you begin to get this alignment with the Paris objectives voluntarily, everything speeds up, you know, and it gives, it would give much greater hope that we're actually going to meet um, the two-degree target. Mm -hmm. So there's a vast role for business. You know, there's a, um, Lord Stern, the economist uh, who did the climate change report that was so important about, what is it now, seven years ago, something like that, estimates that we need around $90 trillion in investment in clean energy infrastructure over the next 15 years. Well, most of that's going to have to be invested by the private sector rather than by governments. Governments can encourage or maybe even require, but um, but that has to come from the private sector. Um, so we need really smart business people to see, uh, to understand the risk, but also see the advantage to them mm. um, in coming
2: about with that investment. Mm. It's, uh, it's actually 10 years since the Stern report. 10, yeah. Yeah, because we... Um, I was at an event the other week, the Aldersgate Group, um, and Lord Stern was there. He gave a very good speech. talked about wh- how long, how far we've come in ten years. So he talked about ten years ago the G8 summit and mm-hmm. the leaders of the G8 countries just laughed it off. Climate change. So I think he said Tony Blair, and the French president were the only two who were receptive. Hmm. Uh, and he said. The change in those ten years has been phenomenal, and the culmination of that being the Paris Agreement last year. He said, and I think he talked about it being that was stage one. Now stage two is to get business on board, and that's going to be the next challenge. But now, as you mentioned, is a financial risk. It, it's really should. It's fundamental for these companies to step up and make the change now. Mm-hmm. You know? That's right, and
1: that um, we're spending a lot of, uh, of time uh, uh, defining. You know why is the financial risk? and then what the duties are for all of the actors in the investment chain. So what we're what we're working on doing is uh, helping people at each stage, and this is another cooperative thing with business and investors to uh, help people at every stage, whether you're the head of a pension fund, whether you're officer or director of a company, whether you're an investment advisor, whether you're a lawyer advising the company, uh, whether you're an actuary, you know there are all of these and more people in the chain. And what does it actually mean uh, in terms of the professional responsibility of each of those actors? Mm -hmm. So how does climate change risk mean they have to operate differently? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because only, I think, if we articulate uh, how it comes into the uh, duty of each of the actors, into their professional duties, in a meaningful way, will they actually see what the duty means. You know, and say, okay, I get it. This is how I have to change my behavior. So, a lawyer, for example, now has to warn um, the uh, companies that he or she advises that climate change is a financial risk. And if you don't, at this point, you know, it's conceivable that you would uh, be uh, liable for professional uh, irresponsibility. You know, and charges uh, about that. But uh, but also, if you're the head of a pension fund, you know, if you're if you're refusing to take climate change risk into account, which some are refusing, some are doing it, which mm-hmm. is great. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Environment Agency in the UK, for example, is doing it, uh, is in a leadership position here. I mean, I, you would think that they should be being the Environment <laughs> Agency, but that doesn't mean that necessarily they would be, but they are. And they've even said in the press that um, they acknowledge that they believe they have a legal duty to do this, mm-hmm. which is great. But not every fund does. Mm-hmm. So... Um, if you are the, the head of a pension fund and you 're not doing it, um, you know you need to understand that there may be liability. your pension fund members may come after you mm-hmm. and they may have a legal right to do so you know uh, because if you're uh, if you're twenty five years old and paying into a pension fund, you know what is the pension fund going to look like when you're seventy five well, unless you're taking account of climate change risk, maybe not so good mm-hmm. and there has been an argument. Um, all along, that well, don't worry, we can shift investment from one thing to the next, you know, from, you know, from oil to tobacco, <laughs> or mm. or whiskey or cars or obviously whatever it is, but the um, uh, uh, I think the game has changed now that the understanding of climate change has grown deeper, yeah. and hence our argument that it's a it's a structural risk to all classes of financial assets. So even if you think uh, you're not investing in coal, but you're investing in something that um, is not going to be affected by climate change, that's wrong. We can show that it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Everything's going to be affected by climate change. So then you should really become... Obviously, you should get rid of the worst things, but even with regard to the more stable things, you should really be, if you're the officers or directors, uh, improving your business plan. Or if you're the uh, pension fund manager, pushing companies to improve mm. their business
2: plan. Mm, I think a big change we're seeing now is a shift in terms of the so-called millennials, the the 25 to 35s, who, who now are forcing businesses to change their whole strategy because they have a deeper understanding of climate change mm-hmm. issues. And there's been numerous uh, researchers gone in and said well, uh, these uh, younger people are m- would be more willing to uh, buy a product or a service if the product was sustainable or mm-hmm. if the business were actually taking, uh, taking note of uh, these climate change mm-hmm. and sustainability issues. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we will see a change, and it's, it's, it's not going to come overnight, but it will happen eventually, I hope. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought to wrap up... Um, We'd finish on a more lighthearted uh, note. So, as I mentioned earlier, James is a man with a fascinating background. Now, before our chat, we did some research on your Wikipedia page. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. So, um, forgive us if any of the information that we have here is wrong. We wouldn't want to be sued for defamation. But, um, so, I thought we'd play a sort of like a little game of um, true or false uh, a fact or fiction file on James Thornton, if you like. Uh, so I'll just come up with I've got I've got a few points here, and you can tell me if it's fact or fiction. Sure. So first up, um, James Thornton is a conservation fellow of the Zoological Society of London. True. True. Very true. Uh, number two, Klein Earth's patrons include none other than Coldplay and Zac Goldsmith. Absolutely true. I will be I will be interested. In how did that happen with Coldplay? What's the link there? Well, the Link is another one of our of our cool people.
1: Uh, you know, the musician Brian Eno mm-hmm. uh, is on our board. You know, and Brian, uh, in addition to doing his own great music and art, uh, has produced a lot of bands over the years, mm-hmm. uh, from Talking Heads to Paul Simon to U2 to Coldplay. Mm-hmm. So back when I met Brian about, oh gosh, it must be 10 years ago now, uh, when I was starting Client Earth, uh, he was producing... Um, you know, series of Coldplay albums, yeah. and uh, once he found out what we were doing, uh, he said, wow, you know, I want to join, but I have these friends I think you should have lunch with. So um, then I went and had lunch with Coldplay, and they said, it was really interesting, they're really smart people, yeah. you know, and they said, well, we've been looking for an environmental group um, that's really professional, you know, and that does stuff we can believe in, so that's you. And they've been with us ever
2: since. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So I suppose it works both ways. I suppose uh, you get you get the free tickets to these Coldplay events. Then a few. Yeah, okay. yeah. You big fan of Coldplay? Oh, they're wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And and Brian. I mean, I, uh, uh, both uh,
1: both Coldplay and Brian are wonderful.
2: So uh, this was my next uh, fact or fiction, which uh, I, I guess is going to be a fact. You once appeared on stage with Brian Eno at the Sydney Opera House. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's
1: true. That's a pretty good gig for a non-profit lawyer. Mm. Uh, But Brian was running the uh, the big Sydney Arts Festival that year. He was curating it, as they say. Uh, And um, so he could do uh, a lot of things that he thought were interesting. And yeah, we had a discussion for a couple of hours on the main stage in the Sydney Opera House about what the future should look like Mm. Uh, with me and him. And then we brought on a a group of, of environmentalists and... I had questions from the audience, and it was great. Mm -hmm. I I don't think I'll ever get to play
2: the main stage of the Sydney Opera House again. (laughs) (laughs) Still, that's one for the bucket list, at least, isn't it? Yep. Um, So, moving on to our next fact or fiction point. You are an ordained priest in the Soto Zen Order at the Zen Center of Los Angeles.
1: Yes, so I am a Zen Buddhist priest, and I've been studying Zen for... Well, I don't know. At least thirty-five years, um, and I studied uh, with a Japanese master um, at, uh, in Los Angeles for ten years, uh, and until he died, um, and then became ordained there. So um, I uh, I do meditate. And I've written a book about spiritual practice, mm-hmm. um, called "A Field Guide to the Soul," which came out in around two thousand. And um, you know, for me, uh, the Zen practice. Um, uh, gives you not only a way of dealing with stress, but it does, but way beyond that, it opens up a space of creativity where you can come up with positive solutions to problems, you know, to policy problems, to legal problems, mm. to human problems. Mm. Because all of these things are that we're talking about are really human problems, aren't they? I mean, they're not just legal problems or policy problems. They're, they're human problems, and they're problems of people thinking, you know. So if you want to... Come up with a um, you know creative way through these human problems. Uh, Zen gives you the space, and it makes you very human. Mm. You know? um, and I was interested uh, recently. I was reading part of Steve Jobs' uh, biography, um, and uh, he described his Zen meditation. He did Zen meditation too, Steve, and he described it in the same way. Uh, he said, "Well, it gives." He said something like, "It gives me the space to be creative, and I get breakthroughs when I meditate." Mm. Uh, interestingly my, uh, my staff just recently has started to ask me to teach them meditation so um, when I was in Warsaw this week um, I led uh, um, seminars on meditation I'm going to do it in the other offices and um, it's uh, it will be a really great experiment they've been teaching meditation at Microsoft and Google mm. for years and I was interested to find out that there's a, they've been teaching meditation in the UK parliament for some years now. so uh, And there are groups of judges and prosecutors mm-hmm. uh, in California that are learning how to meditate to deal with stress and to get better insight. And uh, there's a group of judges in Spain, I just discovered, and a group of lawyers in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. So, slowly, uh, people are you know,
2: using meditation to... To deal with their
1: stress and to you know get that access to creativity.
2: That sounds fascinating. I'm sure it's it's incredibly useful in term in what well, is in general, but especially mm-hmm. if in, when you're taking on such highly stressful uh, activities. Maybe that's uh, what the government been going wrong. Maybe we could get Greg Clark to lead these meditation classes for the uh, for the department. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so moving on, um, you were the executive director of a science research organization which works on the medical application of hallucinogens. That's right. So it's called the Hefter Research Institute.
1: And um, the, uh, the idea here was that a group of uh, top neuroscientists came to me um, a while ago now, say uh, 17, 18 years ago, something like that and said, we um, need to have uh, legal access to research with hallucinogens because uh, nobody's worked with them since the 1960s and they got up wrap. Um, and you know we could do a lot of uh, brain imaging mm. um, if we had access to them because they're the only compounds that actually light up the neocortex mm. uh, so, uh, and the ser- serotonin transmission system there. So we need access to them for that reason. But also we think there are really important therapies that they could be useful for mm-hmm. uh, and they said, you seem like the kind of lawyer who knows how to get things done, so can you help us get legal permission because mm-hmm. so I said well, that's really interesting, sure mm-hmm. um, and um, and we did and now there's a there's a whole new area of science looking modern science looking at the medical uses of, of these, both for uh, imaging but also for uh, working with uh, patients. Uh, with PTSD Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and also uh, there's been now a lot of work very positive work on um, uh, cancer patients who are dying and have a lot of pain Mm. and it turns out that a lot of the pain um, is caused by fear and you know clenching you know so it's uh, both psychological pain and physical pain Mm. and uh, a number of studies now uh, in the United States have shown that uh, you know uh, properly and carefully used um, some of the hallucinogens can um, help these patients get over the fear and
2: significantly reduce their pain.
1: Really interesting. That is fascinating. Yeah.
2: Really. Yeah. Wow. Uh, we'll have one last point which is your factual fiction. Uh your second novel, is this your your most recent novel, I think I'm right in saying, delves into the powers of the ancient gods of Egypt and conjures them into a thrilling sci fi adventure. <laughs>
1: That's that's nicely described. (laughs) Uh, Yes, and uh, everyone, please buy the book. It's called uh, Sphinx, and uh, I uh, I really wanted to uh, put together my interest in in the environment and in ancient Egypt and uh, and various other things uh, into into this novel. And it uh, it was many years in the writing, and it imagines that um, you know it assumes for purposes of the story that the gods of ancient Egypt were real. Um, and uh, I noticed that in, in the Bible and in ancient Egypt uh, people uh, talk about their best people talking to the gods you know so like Moses talks to God and in Egypt uh, some of the pharaohs and priests talk to their gods and, then, and that was just like that's what the stories said and then at a certain time they, uh, they stopped you know and after Moses nobody gets to go up to Mount Sinai and after a certain point the Egyptian pharaohs don't talk to their gods anymore I go, hmm. Well, let's assume that people really did talk to the gods, and then the gods went away. Uh, what if they come back? You know, and the uh, uh, and what we discovered in the in the book is that when the Egyptian gods come back, they're really pissed at what we've done to the planet in the meantime, because they're really quite fond of the planet, mm. <laughs> mm. and um,
2: and that's and that's what happens. And it's it's a great adventure. there mm. mm. you will know? be an early Christmas present for myself then. Um, I think that all but concludes uh, anything that we wanted to discuss, uh, I have got one last thing here and mm-hmm. um, putting you on the spot slightly but if you could impart some wisdom on our listeners, anything you've picked up along mm. the fascinating uh, career that you've had that span decades, mm. doesn't necessarily have to be related to the environment, but mm. any any sort of advice you could give mm. Well that's, that's a wonderful question
1: and it's one that Um, nobody ever asks so well done for asking let me just think I guess for me uh, it's that you uh, must never lose a heart you know you need to find what you want to be doing with your life um, and uh, really sincerely ask you know how to make your life meaningful and then stay with it
2: you know people really can change the world Uh, James I think I'm not overstating when I say you're generally the most interesting person that we've had on this ED podcast. Um, but for now, thank you very much, James. Thank you. George. Yeah. There you go. Some inspirational words of wisdom there from a truly inspiring figure. I did promise you would not disappoint. So that just about wraps up this week's episode of Sustainable Business Covered. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, Luke and Matt will be back in the studio where we will be speaking to vehicle-sharing pioneers Zipcar. And I've just been told an interview with UK's Green Building Council for our Green Building Month. Now, it's worth reminding you all that this podcast is now available on iTunes. Just search for Sustainable Business Covered. And you are still able to listen to them all for free on the ED website. Anyway, until next time, it's goodbye from me.